Is that better? <clears throat> Thank you. So I get to in- enjoy homeschooling with the kids these last few weeks. The older three kids uh, all are part of the same curriculum. We get to do spelling dictation. So all day long, I'm walking around saying slip, grip, twin, skin, and they're writing them down. See, they're doing it right now compulsively. (laughs) Then one at a time, we work on scripture memory. We have a reading lesson where we get to read about Ben and Ken, who are pals. They catch bugs for Jen, the pet hen. We practice handwriting, we do math, flashcards, shapes, thinking problems. Then I do all that again with the next child. Then I do all that again with the next child. And then all together we read more folk tales, more stories, more Mother Goose, and then some worksheets. Once a week on Thursdays, we get the joy of an experiment, a science experiment thrown in there. It's lots of fun. I have enjoyed it. And it feels good to get through it all each day. But each day, it's more of the same. And uh, I have only a little window after we finish with homeschooling to do the other things that I have needed to do. But it's really repetitive. We start over each day. And I've gotten to experience all kinds of things. I've gotten to experience the adorable learners who prefer to answer their questions while sitting on my shoulders. I experience... Slow learners who take 30 minutes to read 50 words. I've experienced fast learners who freak out over every mistake because it slows them down and makes them go back and redo it. I've experienced tearful learners who fear that they'll never get it right and confident learners who don't realize they're getting it wrong. And forgetful learners who don't even remember what we talked about the day before. And so we're constantly doing the same things over and over and over And over again. Why do I tell you all this? It's because every step of the way, as I've been doing this, I've had the book of Ecclesiastes on my mind. It's amazing how applicable this book of Ecclesiastes is to any part of life. And it's not a coincidence either because I've heard comments from many of you saying similar things. Just last week, Rob told me that the last few sermons in Ecclesiastes haven't contained any new insights for him, but they've been particularly helpful reminders, remarkably connected to what was going on in his life that week. And this is, I think, just normal when you study Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is a uniquely practical book because it gets down and dirty into the nitty-gritty of our lives and it speaks to us there. And so it is very practical, very applicable. I would like to summarize where we've been in Ecclesiastes before I tell you where we're going to go with this text in the last few verses of the book to wrap up the book. Ecclesiastes was written to expose the vanity of life under the sun and to give us strategies to cope with that vanity. What is vanity? According to Ecclesiastes, the way the author of this book uses the term, uh, it was defined in the first week of our sermon series by Warren Wright, where he said, life on earth is about unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember. Nothing you do will last, and at the end, you die. And you can't fix it, so your best bet is to enjoy it. 
but you can't because you can't please God. That's what vanity is. That's what life is like on earth. How do we cope with it? All through the book, he's given us strategies for coping with this vanity. And the chief strategy is to rest assured that God is in control of everything that happens. All that happens, all the vanity you experience, all the pain and suffering in the world, all of it happens because God appointed it to happen. Therefore, it's worth it to fear God and not fear people or to fear circumstances or to fear the pain of living in a fallen world. Because God's gift to those who fear him is the ability to enjoy the vanity. Therefore, there's nothing better for us than to eat, to drink, and to enjoy our labor under the sun. This morning, we come to the end of the book. We reach the book's conclusion. We're going to read from Ecclesiastes 12, starting at verse 9. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 360. I felt it important in my introduction to recap the book's content so we could have that in mind because these last few verses don't repeat those principles. What the preacher does is he he steps out of his argument. He's completed his reasoning. He's told us everything he wants us to know. Now he steps out of the argument. He steps back from it and he tells us what he thinks we should get out of this book. He tells us what to do with this reasoning now that we've heard it. And so we're going to study these last few verses together and use that as a way to summarize the entire book. What should we get out of Ecclesiastes? And we'll see three things. We should get three things. We should learn how to read this book. We should learn how much to value this book. And we should learn how to respond to this book. Let me pray, and then I'll read the passage. Father in heaven, we praise you for sending us this book to meet us in the nitty-gritty details of our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see you and to get out of this book what you have for us, what you have spoken by your Spirit through the pen of the preacher. And we ask that you would do this for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we learn how to read this book. Starting at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. First, in verses 9 through 11, we learn how to read this book. Verse 9 says that the preacher was wise. In other words, he was not raving mad and he was not angry at God. He was wise. But besides being wise, he also taught the people knowledge. So the preacher, the one who wrote this book, he taught knowledge. He did not teach nihilism. He did not teach rebellion or ignorance. He taught knowledge. 
In addition, he was weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. We must understand that the sentiments in this book of Ecclesiastes are not the thoughtless ravings of someone furious at God or at the world. But these are have been weighed and studied and arranged. And they've been arranged with great care. The end of verse 9. This man spent a lot of time writing and editing and packaging this book to get it just right. He gave it great care. What was his goal in doing these things? Verse 10 tells us, The preacher sought to find words of delight. He was not looking for words of frustration or pain or disappointment. He was looking for words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. He didn't hold back the brutal facts, but in doing so, he never spoke poorly of God, nor did he ever speak wrongly of life on this planet. For all who read, for both the believer and the unbeliever. What's the point of these two verses? These two verses are really critical to show us how to read this book. These two verses should shade our reading of the entire book of Ecclesiastes because oodles of people pick up this book and they read selections of the book and they come away with the wrong idea about this book. Some read this book and they think it's a book about the bankruptcy of a non-Christian worldview. Others think that it's a book about depression, the depression that someone has before they know God. Others have read this book and they have heard two voices in the book. I've read some commenters who say there are two voices. There's the voice of faith and there's the voice of hedonistic anger. And these two voices are debating with one another in the book. Some see the book as the reflections of someone who used to seek truth apart from God, but then later in life, he came to recant of his findings. But these two verses, verses 9 and 10, they should shade our reading of the entire book. In fact, they have shaded our preaching of this book for the last three months. We've referred to these verses regularly because they tell us that this book is a book of wisdom. It is a book of knowledge. It is a book of carefully arranged proverbs. It is filled with words of delight and words of truth. Now, there is a tension at times between truth and delight words of delight and words of truth. Because sometimes the truth is incredibly dark and brutal. And sometimes the delight in this book is shamelessly unbridled. But the God of the Bible can handle these two things together and the true faith must hold both truth and delight at once. How does this apply for us? When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, after we finish our sermon series and you go on your way and you're reading the Bible, whenever you come back to this book, read this book as it presents itself. Read it as words of truth and words of delight. Please don't minimize the tension between truth and delight. Because in some passages, we have seen the deepest, darkest effects of the fall. And some of you have a quick reaction against that toward the hope of the gospel. You want to get to that hope as fast as you can and get out of the darkness. It's difficult to allow the sadness of a fallen world to sink in. Let that truth sink in. 
In other passages, we've seen the unbridled joy of life under the sun. And some of you react quickly and you think, no, we'll only find joy like that in heaven when we get beyond the sun. But the preacher offers it to you here and now under the sun. Or you might even think that everybody else might be happy, but I'll never be happy. You talk about this joy, but you don't know how difficult my life really is. Please hold both of these things together. It is not wisdom to focus on truth or delight to the exclusion of the other. Biblical Christian wisdom is to hold both together. And life in a fallen world resists oversimplification. There are times when we just need to weep at the truth of what this is like. And there are other times when we need to grab another mug of eggnog and join the singing because those are the most delightful things you could do. Think of Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. It was the moment of one of his greatest triumphs, probably his greatest miracle that he performed. At that tomb, he tells Martha, the brother of dead Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus accomplishes this incredibly delightful thing. And it's filled with hope as he talks about resurrection and the life that he has. And he raises Lazarus from the dead such that Lazarus's enemies can make no accusation. They must plot instead to murder Lazarus again, make him die again so that the faith in Jesus stops spreading. This is one of Jesus's greatest triumphs. But at the same time, It's one of the only times in the Gospels that we're told that Jesus wept. Jesus spoke words of delight, but he also wept at the great brokenness that death and suffering brought to people's lives. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes meets you in the everyday details of life. Ecclesiastes exposes the vanity of life so that you won't put your hope in anything here but then it helps you to find delight in the Lord who appointed this vanity as your lot. So how should we read this book? We should read it as containing both truth and delight. Moving on into verse 11, he says that the words of this book serve two purposes. They correspond to these two characteristics of truth and delight. The words of the wise are like goads, like the truth, and they're like nails firmly fixed like delight. Let me explain this. The words of the wise are like goads. A goad is a sharp, pointy, wooden stick that a cowherd uses to prod his cattle in the right direction. And at times, as we've read this book, we have been poked by these words. We have been prodded and we have been offended. This book has non-traditional advice for how to handle corruption in the world. Not what a lot of Christians teach. This book suggests that some of us in this room would have been better off being stillborn. This book promises no end to foolishness in the civil government. And it promises you that there will be no end under the sun to immorality in the church of God. This book has been more frank about the dark side of life than some of you are comfortable with. This book confuses you with assurances of delight while also suggesting that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. 
What do we do with that? This book threatens to expose you by showing that nothing you love on earth will satisfy you. But then this book has the guts not to give you an easy way out. Like boycotting evil or going off to a monastery and abstaining from physical pleasure for the rest of your life. These things won't work. These words are like goads poking you constantly with the truth. But that's not all. This, these words are also like nails firmly fixed. You see, life is filled with so many unanswered questions. And these unanswered questions are like so many creaky boards in this house we call planet Earth. And these collected sayings are like nails firmly fixed. They come and nail down your creaky boards. Do you have unanswered questions? Have you wondered how can a good God allow evil to continue unchecked? Why do so many innocent people have to suffer so much? Why are my children far from the Lord? Why is our church not growing as quickly as I would like? Why is our church growing more quickly than I would like? And it's not staying nice and small and intimate. How will I pay my next bill? Have I lost my chance to get married? Will I ever have a child? When is, why is my career on such a dead end? When will my parents ever treat me like an adult and respect my decisions? Why do my children still not know how to close the shower curtain on bath night and keep the water from getting everywhere? And the preacher comes and he nails these questions down for your delight. And he says, God has decided it would be like this. God has appointed these things to take place. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And you will never know the reasons why he did it. You cannot straighten what he has made crooked. So how should you read this book? Look for the truth about your life, but look for the delight God has for you in the midst of your vanity. That's how to read this book. Point number two, how much should we value this book? Second thing to get out of this book is how much to value it. In verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, beyond these collected sayings written in this book. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. He says that there are so many books out there. And he wrote this thousands of years ago. He had no idea how many books there were going to be. And especially, especially books written to try to deal with these difficult questions we have about life on earth. And he says there are so many books out there and there will always be many books trying to answer these questions for you. But beware of anything beyond these things that are written in this book of Ecclesiastes. Much study is a weariness to the flesh. In other words, he's saying that when it talks about when you're thinking about life on earth and why your life is difficult, there is one book you must master if you want to have answers. This is it. This is it. We've spent three months examining this book. I return to this book often 
in my life, especially when things get difficult. And if you don't understand, if you don't get the answers this book has for you, you are in for a long, long road because it doesn't matter how many other books you read, you will exhaust yourself looking for the answers. How does this apply? How much should we value this book? Master what you have here in this precious book and it is enough. You can hear your shepherd's voice right here. These collected sayings are given by one shepherd, verse 11. And you can fear the God who has appointed all that comes to pass. That's how much to value this book. Number three, how to respond to this book. How to respond to this book. Verse 13, he gets to the end of the matter. All has been heard. And the end of the matter is rather simple. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You see, it's not your duty to understand why things happen the way they do. It's not your duty to understand why the world is so broken and why things are not changing. It is not your duty to convince every sad and discouraged person of the truth. It is not your duty to make right every wrong that there is in the world. It is not your duty to make sure that the people around you are doing the right thing. It is your duty to fear God and do what he says. Because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And because, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will expose every secret, every good secret and every evil secret. This judgment is coming and some will face this judgment on the last day. On that last day when every wrong will be made right and every secret will be exposed and every lie will be corrected, every wound will be avenged, every theft will be repaid. Some will face this judgment on the last day, but others have faced this judgment already. When a man who came from God hung on a cross and he suffered judgment for every wrong you've ever done every wrong you haven't even done yet. He cried out to God on your behalf and he now pleads with God not to destroy you because he already died for you. And because he died for you, now every cup of cold water you offer to someone in his name will be refilled. Every choice you make to offer words of praise instead of words of complaint, they will be returned to you with praise from on high. Every meal cooked for a family with a newborn. Some of you have made a lot of those these last few months. It will be placed back on your table a hundredfold. Every witness to Christ you have made will receive divine commendation because God will shout to the mountaintops, Well done, good and faithful servant! And we'll look around the room wondering who he's talking to. (laughs) Because we know we don't deserve the commendation. We'll know he's not giving us praise for what we've done, but for what's been done by Christ for us. 
or by Christ's spirit through us. Maybe we'll even feel a momentary embarrassment that there must be a mistake. He's got the wrong people. Lord, when did we do what you wanted us to do? And he'll correct us gently and knowingly in his fatherly way, and he'll ask us to enter in and share his glory with him, the glory he's been storing up, reserved for us from before the foundation of the world, before everything started to go downhill, before we ever had to grapple with our unanswered questions. He was storing up this glory for you. This God, dear friends, will do as he pleases. And he is pleased to lavish his gifts on those who do not deserve them. Therefore, there is no need for you to fear what you don't know about the future. There is no need for you to fear the government becoming more corrupt or making more laws that deny God's created order. There is no need for you to fear the people who determine your pay grade. There is no need for you to fear the evil now at work and present in the world. There is no need for you to fear yourself or what new recipe for disaster your sinful heart can brew up. There is no need for you to fear life or sin or Satan or the world. There is only one whom you should fear. He is the one who won't just harm your body, but he can throw both your body and soul into hell. But he is the one who knows the numbers of hairs on your head. And not a single one of those hairs can fall to the ground without his appointment that it be so and that it be beautiful in its time to do so. You are as precious and safe and secure in his arms as you imagine yourself to be in your own bed. So how should you respond to this book of Ecclesiastes? Please don't accuse God or blame God for your trouble. Please don't rage against God for not doing anything to make it better. Please don't shame yourself and don't harm others with shallow Christian sentiments in the face of great disaster. Oh, it's okay. Just cheer up. God loves you. No. How should you respond? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is your whole duty. Let me tell you where we're going to go next with our sermons in the next few months. We're going to take the next four weeks for a series of sermons being preached by every member church of the City Church here in State College. It's called The Church Next Door. This sermon series is designed to encourage you to pray for people that you know, and we're going to uh, launch uh, an, an effort in growth groups and in our church to be praying for people with the hope of leading in the next few months to at least one gospel conversation with the people in our lives. And after that series, we'll return to the Old Testament. We're going to come back to preach through the book of Job next because Ecclesiastes is full of important theory that we need to get. We must master this book. And God also gave us a long, dramatic poem that illustrates the very principles that Ecclesiastes seeks to teach us. We'll see how Job experienced the vanity of life under the sun. We'll see how God was up to something that Job could never guess. Job could not fix fix it. 
when the brokenness came and many counselors came to Job who had no real answers for his vanity. But in the end, Job certainly learned that his whole duty was to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's where we're going in the next few months to try to see how these principles apply in real life, what they look like. We'll see the illustration God gave us in the book of Job. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this book of Ecclesiastes, and thank you for showing us how to read it, that we could see your truth and delight. Please help us to value it as uh, the, the book that, that answers these questions for us, maybe not with the answers we want, but with the answers we need. And please help us to respond the way you would have us respond, by fearing you and keeping your commandments. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.